Just sit in that song for a moment, those words. Spirit of the living God, speak. The invitation for the God of the universe to enter into our time, our space, and speak requires us to make time and to make space. We've been talking in this margin series now for a month. We're a month in. How you doing? I know for a number of you, it's been kind of self-awareness month where you realize that's the problem. That's why I'm always overloaded. That's why I'm always cranky. That's why I never have enough month or enough paycheck at the end of the month. That's why, that's why, that's why. It's like I got to create space. Self-awareness starts the process. You can't fix what you don't know about. But then you got to take that next step and do something. It's been pretty incredible this past month to hear different people talk about different initiatives, different moves that they're making. Some, from a physical point of view, they've looked at their life and they said, you know what? There's not enough margin between me and the table. I need to create some space there. In my diet, in my exercise, I'm living an unsustainable way of living. Legitimate. I've been there, done that. Also, margin in budget. We have 37 individuals going through our financial peace class right now. Two weeks ago, non-mortgage debt, over three quarters of a million dollars. Three quarters of a million dollars with just 37 people in non-mortgage debt. They're making big strides, cutting up cards, creating snowballs to make bigger snowballs to see God do some work in their finances. Job hunts. Talked to a person not too long ago who said, I'm not going to take that promotion. And I asked him why. Is it because the promotion is going to require me to move, relocate, or it's going to require more time, more time away from family. And I'm not going to give it. I don't care if it caps me. I'm not giving it. I love it. Myself, this has been a series that's been tough for me personally. I've got a lot of spinning plates and it's pretty exhausting. But I've been able, I've been forced to maybe, to say no to some things I want to say yes to. And to make space for what really matters most. It's a process that we go through. Where are you at? What have you done? And I tell you what, you can look at it and go, man, I have not, I've not seen great victory. Don't, don't discount what God has already started in you. Start looking at that. Say, God, you've started this. What more are you going to do? I want us to all read a verse together. Probably not one that you've read a lot. It's in the book of Zechariah. It says it like this. Do not despise these small beginnings. Read it with me. Do not despise these small beginnings. For the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. God loves to see the work that he's already started. Don't get caught up in exponential. Sometimes it's in the mini. It's in the micro. It's in those gradual changes. Be open to creating margin. Let's pray right now that we'll be open to make the changes necessary in our life. Father God, we hold our life out in front of you. We, we are into this, Lord, to see a more sustainable way of life. 
one that creates and sustains joy and peace and contentment. Lord, help us in this time together to make space for what matters most. And today, what matters most is the most important thing. So God, today, set our hearts, set our minds, set our affections at the table today. Help us to, as Brooke said, push away, make cl- move the clutter away, and let's make space for God at our table. And then let us taste and see that the Lord is good. Lord, we bless you and thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, we are on a journey to find margin or maybe create margin. It's not going to be found. It's not going to come to us. Everything in the world is going to come to us and to steal and rob it from us. And really, it comes down to that we will create margin when the pain of living marginless is greater than the pain of creating margin. We just simply will live with an overloaded plate. We will simply live with our uh, with uh, getting another credit card because we've already maxed out this and, and we need more money to sustain our happy pursuits of life. It, we, we will end a relationship and go into another relationship because this one got loaded down with so much baggage, mistrust, and brokenness that that got cashed in and I'm going to start all over. There's a lot of ways and areas of our life that, that if we don't stop it now and redirect ourselves, we will literally overload and break in different domains of our life. And we're talking about the different domains as we move through the book of Ecclesiastes. As, as you, you find this, this powerful, awesome, incredible, wise, knowledgeable, influential king, Solomon, yet at the end of his life writing his memoirs and saying, man, it's all vain. And at the same time, he, he struggles to, to, to anchor himself or he actually gets himself anchored in the ground in, 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 some, in some incredible ways. And, and so today we want to talk about creating space for God. Creating space for God because in this overloaded, overcommitted, overexhausted world that we live in, the, one of the first things that we don't have space for at the table, to use Brooks' metaphor, at the table of our life is God. We don't see him, touch him, feel him, smell him, taste him. It's, we, he's not tangible, so therefore he's many times the, the, the one who gets shoved to the side. And you talk to, again, generations of today, the millennials say that 70% of them identify themselves as spiritual but not religious. And I can, I, can, I, can, I can agree with that in heart. But then when you ask them in the same survey, how many of y'all read a sacred writing? Again, spiritual just means spiritual. It doesn't mean Christian. It could be Muslim. It could be Hindu. It could be uh, any number of, of religions out there. But you ask them, then how many of you guys and gals are actually reading the sacred writings of something out there? And only 65% or 65% said they don't read anything of a spiritual nature. 67% of them said they don't pray. So now go figure. I say I'm spiritual, but I'm not praying. I say I'm spiritual, but I'm not reading sacred writings. Then really, am I spiritual or am I just humanistic? We, we've got to figure out this God thing. 
It's one of the domains. We've been talking about taking a margin audit of your life and looking at our life in, in a matter of domains. And one of those domains is that spiritual domain. How are you doing in that domain? What's your relationship with God? Because I can tell you this, when we talk about God, you kind of can put God into a couple of different buckets. He either is in, and I think that's what the, the millennial kind of frame of mind is, is, is in this abstract spirituality. Abstract spirituality. It could be quantum physics that they or originate from. It could be Hinduism or Eastern religions that they originate from, where you can kind of create your own. And it's this abstract, almost philosophical kind of make up your own as you go. That's one end of the pendulum. Or you can swing the pendulum the other way. It's this institutional religion. And I want to say it's neither. But actually what it is, is it's a dynamic relationship. That the more I invest in the relationship, the more I get from the relationship. It's totally a relationship. And if we don't make that switch in our mind, we will miss it. But here's, here's the thing about relationship. It doesn't matter the relationship that it, I'm talking about. Every relationship requires investment. If you have a relationship with your dog, it requires you to invest in your dog. Think about it. What keeps your dog from biting you or licking you? Wagging its tail at you or barking at you? If you feed it, it will love you to death. And you will be man's best, that dog will be man's best friend all the way through life. But if you kick it, if you ignore it, if you neglect it, if you're a stranger to it, it will likely bark or bite you. Think about it like that. Even a dog relationship needs nurturing. Marriage needs nurturing. I want my wife to give me 100%. Well, guess what I need to do? 100% of myself to it first. Here we go into Valentine's week. What am I going to do? What am I going to get? What do I want? What do I want? I need to give 100% of myself to what she needs, what she wants, what she longs for. Think about it like that. Parenting. I wish my kids would listen to me, parents say. I say to parents, when's the last time you listened to your kids? Oh, I listen to them. I hear their complaints. No, no, listen to their heart. Listen to their thoughts and their ideas. Now, kids, don't be looking at parents right now. You might be good to listen to your parents as well. Because the stupid mistake that you're about to do, they did already, and it didn't work for them either. So learn from their wisdom. So whatever it is, and even in our relationship with God, it requires a mutual investment in, uh, 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 of, of ourselves. We love Psalm 23. It's one of the most popular verses and uh, chapters in all the Bible, especially the Old Testament. Quoted at weddings and funerals and different times of, of different people's journeys in life. We love it because the things that it promises us, he will lead us beside still waters. He restores my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. You anoint my head with oil. Surely my cup overflows, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever all the days of my life. Oh, we love the promises of Psalm 23, but do we read Psalm 23, verse 1? The Lord is my shepherd. See, he is our shepherd, then he leads us beside the still waters. 
There's an engagement, there's an investment, there's a buy-in on both sides. I want you to think about your relationship with God. I want you to put yourself into a category, okay? We're going to take a phone survey so you can take out your phones if you want to participate in this. Regular data rates will apply. Um, Here's the question. This is the first service answer, so don't let it pollute your mind. So just think about it from this. You're going to enter into the survey if you're going to enter into it, and you're going to, in the, in the message section, type in GPCNWA, but you're going to text that to 22333, and then you will immediately be enrolled in it. At that point, you will then give your answer to this question. Which phrase best describes your relationship with God? God's my BFF, okay? God's a casual friend. I know him. He knows me. We, we, we get together once a week at least, called Sunday morning. Okay? He's an acquaintance. Yeah, I know him. I hope he knows me. I hope that when I die, I'll be with him and he knows me. And, I, and it's not going to be this awkward experience in, in, in eternity. That would really be awkward for a long time. Uh, but anyway, or who is God? I don't know God. To be, I mean, to be really honest, I just don't know God. Or actually, God's an annoyance to you. Feel free to answer honestly, okay? God sees the answer, but he also knows the heart anyway. So don't, don't try to make it what you wish it was. Let it be what it is. And establish who you are. Again, it's that self-awareness. I can't fix what I don't know. I can't fix what I don't admit. And so let's get on the right track and let's figure this whole relationship thing out. So, okay, let's go back to Solomon. So that survey is going to keep populating. We'll have those results uh, throughout the day. So as you think about this, uh, so, uh, Solomon in Ecclesiastes, be finding Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We've been journeying through, again, some ups and downs and turns and twists and turns and emotional. Woof. I'm talking, we're getting inside the journals of the wise King Solomon, who was an advisor to the Queen of Sheba, who was an advisor and made treaties of lands, who built the greatest temple that ever was built in Israel. I mean, you cannot say enough good about the success of King Solomon. But when you enter in behind the closed doors, behind the veil, behind inside of his heart, and you begin to understand as he unpacks the disillusionment of his own life, it makes you wonder about some things. And what I like about it and don't like about it all at the same time is I don't like what he says, but I love his honesty, his authenticity. Because to be honest with you, I felt some of the same thoughts. I've had some of the same voices in my head that he's wrestling with. But at the same time, there's an incredible thing that happens in ev- almost every chapter, at least every chapter we've gone through so far, there is this anchor. There's, there's something that no matter what gets shaken, move, moved around, there's an anchor in the ground and it's not moving. In chapter one, he's stating his philosophy on life. Yet in verse 13, he acknowledges the sovereignty of God. Chapter two, He gives a personal testimony of the own emptiness and the emptiness of life and the pursuits of life. Yet he found that living a life of pleasure to God was a beautiful thing in verse 26. In chapter 3, he talks about the the seasons of life that we go through in the various seasons. Sometimes there's war and sometimes there's peace. But then he says, God makes everything beautiful in its time. Now, I don't know when that time is, and it's typically not the time that I want it to happen, but in his time, in its time, it will be beautiful if I continue the journey with him. Chapter four, 
He talks about all the voices in his head. Yet at the same time, he says, better is a handful of quietness. The peace that he has in his heart. So though, again, every chapter, brokenness, disillusionment, overwhelmed, marginless. At the same time, there's this anchor that ha- keeps him going, keeps him solid, keeps him secure. In chapter 5, we kind of get the secret behind it. Chapter 5, he gives us, he starts it off, does no introduction, just jumps in with both feet. And he says this, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. Guard your steps. When have we heard this before? When have we heard the word guard from the, from, the, from the lips and the fingertips of Solomon? Well, if you go back in Proverbs when he talks about that we need to guard our heart for out of it flow the wellsprings of life. Proverbs chapter 4. When you go there and you find out that we're supposed to guard our hearts and now he's telling us to guard our feet. To guard where our feet go. To guard as our steps are out about life. To guard them as they go into the house of God. Now again, you've got to remember first century you got to remember, excuse me, not first century, 10th century BC, whenever he built the first temple, that first temple that was magnificent and beautiful and no other temple has ever measured up to it. And it's, it's there and it, it's destroyed now. It's been built, rebuilt, but it's never lived up to that, to that same Solomon standard. At the same time, that became the place of worship. And he's saying, hey, listen, guard your steps, guard your steps. When you enter the house of God. Well, basically, he's saying, listen, you're going into the presence of God. Be very mindful of your steps. Now, here's the problem with that whole statement, though. We sometimes get it caught up in the house of God. And we make it about the house and not about God. We can't, we can't get the emphasis on the, the wrong word. Worship wrongly came to center on a building and a place. Worship is really about a person and a relationship. The house of God? No, it's about God. Because the emphasis from the Old to the New Testament goes away from a building, from a structure on the mountain in Jerusalem. It's not about the mountain in Jerusalem. It's, it's, it's about us walking every day of our life fully aware that we are the temple of God. That we are walking as the temple of God. So we're needing to guard our steps as we enter into the house of God. But what does it say in 1 Corinthians? What did Paul say? He said this. He said, do you not realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You are the temple of God. So let's translate that now to us. Basically... When you get up every morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you know Jesus, if you've been born again and you've experienced that new life, and if you haven't, I pray today that you will give yourself to him. I pray in a few weeks that when we, in fact, on the 10th of March, a month from today, we're going to have baptism and we're going to celebrate this new life in Christ. If you've never declared your faith in Christ, then you come in and you be a part of that that time of celebration. And we're going to have communion later on. I hope today, if you've given your life to Christ, that you will celebrate it. But the magic sauce is not in this building or in this place. It's in a relationship with Jesus. And his temple is now in us. And so translate this. I need to guard my steps as I live in awareness of his spirit is in me as I live my life every day. That literally my life is a moving place of worship. 
that as I live, I should be worshiping. And as I think about that, how do I, how do I enter into that? How do I dive into, into such that? Let's, let's read the whole passage in its whole context. Verse one, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer sacrifices of fool. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth. Now notice the number of times he says mouth and lips and talking and listening. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Now notice this next statement, I love it. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Basically this. Hey, God's in heaven, you're on earth, shut your trap and listen to the man upstairs. That's the McDaniel paraphrase. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. And when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for it has no, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow. Notice the vow, the commitment here that he's asking us uh, to be very mindful and reverent of. Vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. It's a good warning. Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one that you must fear. We live out our life as an act of worship to God. Why do we worship this God? Why do we, why do we do this? Because we are the temple of God and God is in us and God's a part of us. And worship is a life I live. It's not a Sunday that I give. It's not that I just come on Sunday and I give a, a, an hour or two. It's the life that I'm living out. Why? He deserves my first. He deserves my best. He deserves my first. He deserves my best. And that's who he is. And as I walk out my days and I live out my lives, I need to make sure that every step that I take, I'm fully aware of that. Now, how shall I live out my days? How shall I live out my life? How do I worship with my life? How do I come into this place of worship? How do I meet with God? And how do I do that? And what kind of song should I sing? And what kind of Bible translation should I read from? And what kind of prayer should I pray? I don't know how to pray, so I can't meet with God. All that kind of stuff. Here. Listen to this. Here's a couple of things that we need to be hazardous, hazards out there, if you will. Caution, if you will. Steps that we need to watch that we not step into that hole. Number one is we need to understand our big mouths. We have big mouths and little ears. Big mouths and little ears will get us in trouble. Will cause us to misstep, cause us to fall and stumble. I was reminded this week in our trauma training uh, uh, event that we, God gave us two ears and one mouth so that we can listen more than we talk. Think about that. James chapter 1 verse 19, every person is to be quick to hear and slow to speak. Proverbs ten nineteen: too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. That might be a good verse on the refrigerator this week or something like that. Ecclesiastes 10 verse 14. It's all through Ecclesiastes, by the way, talking to us about monitoring our mouths. A fool multiplies words. 
A fool multiplies words. Abraham Lincoln was credited with saying that uh, it's better for someone to think you're a fool than to open your mouth and to remove all doubt. Think about that. We need to monitor our words and what comes out and be mindful. This is the guy who wrote 3,000 Proverbs, of which we only have 900 of them recorded. So, But what is it about him telling us to keep our mouths shut? Because he learned, if you read the Proverbs, the density of those words and those phrases. They're very thought out. And he is very cognizant of what he's saying and those words matter and, and what he's saying matters. And he needs to be very conscious of that. Have you ever been a part of a small group where you have a chatty Kathy? You, you have the person who dominates the conversations. And they'll say, or in a meeting, it could be a small group, it could be a meeting, it could be a meeting at work. And they say, I'm just a verbal processor. I call that a verbal vomiter. I, I want to say, go process over there and then come back to the meeting and figure out what you're going to say. Fewer words are better than more words. More words don't equal more knowledge. It actually shows your foolishness. Ecclesiastes chapter 6 verse 11, the more words you speak, the less they mean. See, we deal with the noise pollution today and it's not too much noise outside, it's too much noise inside. We live in a noisy, busy world. Silence and solitude are not 21st century words. They fit an era of Victorian lace and high button shoes and kerosene lamps. Better than an age of, uh, than an age of television and video games and joggers and ear, with earphones. We have become people with an aversion to quiet and uneasiness with being alone. We need to find peace. And solitude in being alone. Getting alone, being alone, finding silence, finding God in the silence. Reggie McNeil said it like this. He said, leaders who achieve greatness in the spiritual world not only endure aloneness, they also build it into their lives. Very intentional. They create margin, I add that, for alone time. They uh, appreciate the depth of soul-making, I like that phrase, that is possible only in solitude. You look at Moses and David and Elijah and Zephaniah and Jonah and Habakkuk and Jeremiah and Jesus and Paul, and you will all find they had alone time. They found alone time, made alone time. The great revivalists of our lands, Whitfield and Edwards and Wesley, John and Charles, Spurgeon and Trotman, and even a country farmer from North Carolina named Billy Graham, all speak of the practice of getting alone into silence. Not something we do on a regular basis. But hey, if you're going to be careful of the way you're stepping into this world and walking out into this world, be careful of your words. Verse 1, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. To draw near, to listen is better than to offer sacrifices. Five times in these verses, he's going to tell us to watch our mouth, monitor our mouth, monitor our words. Be careful lest your words lead you into sin. He says, do not be rash with your mouth or hasty with, uh, to utter a word. Let your words be few Fool's voice has many words. You see all the times he's pointing to our language and our words. Maybe we need to practice what the old 
monasteries practice times of silence and solitude. Try it. It'll probably make you feel uncomfortable. In fact, I, I, I would almost bet it will make you feel uncomfortable. Because you're going to start hearing voices. Yeah, those voices. Some of them are good and some of them are bad. Lean in. Understand. Replace the bad voices with truth in that silence and solitude. Ecclesiastes 3, 7, there's a time to be silent and a time to speak. Habakkuk 2, 20 says, be silent before him. Zephaniah 1, 7, be silent before the sovereign Lord. Wait patiently, lamentation says, in the salvation of the Lord. Let him, uh, let him set alone in silence. Jesus had the practice. Didn't matter how many people were around him. He would go to the other side. He'd leave the masses to go to the other side of the, of the ocean or, or the sea to get away to a quiet place. He would get up in the morning before it was, before it was, the sun was even up and anybody else was moving. He would get up with the chickens and he would go off to it very early in the morning while it was still dark. Jesus got up and left the house and went to a solitary place. I love finding sacred places in the strangest of places. I've been in Times Square at 4.30 in the morning. Times Square, and there's still people in Times Square at 4.30 in the morning, but there's not very many people. And I just set up a table and I just made a sacred place in the middle of Times Square. You can be anywhere. In fact, I'm tired of the excuses that I hear. I can't. You don't understand my schedule. You don't know the demands of my schedule. You don't know how many kids I have. I can't. I can't. I can't. You got to make it happen. Margin doesn't come to you. You make margin. Susanna Wesley, mother of Charles and John Wesley, raised many other children. In a day before we could turn things off and turn media on so that you could get your silent time, she would take her apron pull it up over her head and put her Bible in her lap and read it and let the kids do whatever they did on the other side. If you need to go buy an apron this afternoon, go buy an apron and put it up over your head, build your own little tent meeting with God. If you have to pull into the pantry of your, of your kitchen, close the door, there's not going to be blood. There won't be any, there'll be messes on the other side when you get up and come out, but go into the closet and find some time of silence and solitude with God. And, and listen, if you work in the corporate world and you're busy from sunup to sundown, you may have to get up before everyone else. You may have to go to bed later than everyone else, but you make time. Scripture and meditation is what you fill that time with. Whenever we don't just empty ourselves, we fill ourselves with truth. It was Jesus' prayer that we'd be sanctified in the truth that his word was truth. That's how we're, our lives are going to be changed and different as we get in the truth. Elijah was looking for God's voice in the storms, in the thunderclap, in the firebolts. He couldn't find it in any of that. Where did he find it? He found it in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 12. The sound of a gentle blowing. We're going to create some awkwardness here in a little bit. But would you do yourself a favor? Not me a favor. Do yourself a favor. Enter into the silence. Take the back of your bulletin. We've changed the way we format that to ask you questions about the message. Not about my message, but about the message that God has given you. Take some time and review some scripture. Take some time and listen to God and write it out. 
What's he saying? We're going to have communion a little bit. It's going to be one of those where we have six stations around the room. You can go there whenever you're ready. When we open up the gates, you're just free to go. You may not go at first. You may go at the end. You may go at first and take your elements back to your seat and sit down and, and, and meditate and pray with those elements and thinking about what Jesus has done and given to us. It is both beautiful and tragic. It's tragic because of the death and the gruesomeness and what put him there. I put him there. You put him there. It's beautiful because he went willingly, lovingly. And because of that, he bridges the gap so that we can be in a relationship with the God of the universe. Set in that a while. Re-engage that in your soul. Be careful that we're not Miss the silence. Also, vast promises with shallow worship is another thing that you see in this passage that will be something you will have to guard and watch yourself against. There's so many there's things out there that this world wants from you. This world wants your attention. These are the commodities that are on the market of your life. They want your attention. I mean, all around you, everybody's begging and buying your attention. We don't have time to go into that. But for since the beginning of time, time and money have been the commodity of choice. Now here's the tension of this. The tension of this is that, that that's something that we really can't typically stretch. We can't do anything with a 24-hour clock. We haven't been anything doing anything since Adam and Eve. It is a 24-hour clock. It is always going to be a 24-hour clock until the end of time. It's 24 hours. Sorry. Now, you can cram as much into that 24 hours, and you might be able to get more into it than I am because you're more efficient than I am, but the reality is it's still 24 hours. And this world wants all of it, and your children want all of it, and life wants all of it. Now, who are you going to give it to? Then there's the money. Money is money. You can't stretch a dollar bill. You can't grow a dollar bill. It is what it is. I know there's the laws of economics, and I know that you in this, in this world of Northwest Arkansas, you do all you can to help us to save money and live better, and thank you for that. Little plug. At the reality, at the end of the day, though, there's only so much dollars out there that you have, and sometimes we get bogged down in getting more, and we never get enough, and we get sucked into this, and what we've got to come back to in the beginning of it all, every step that I take, every thought that I have, is that I've got to ask myself, is this honoring to God? Is God in this space? Is God in this time? Is God in this and the world is going to beg for it. Mary and Martha struggled with it. Mary was at the feet of Jesus and Martha wanted her in the kitchen. Wanted her time. Whenever Mary, another Mary, in also in Bethany, don't think it's the same Mary, think it's maybe Mary Magdalene. She takes an alabaster jar, busts it, and breaks it on the feet of Jesus and anoints his feet in an act of humble worship. Beautiful moment. And what in that beautiful moment do the disciples do? They literally make this statement. It is a waste. It was a waste. You wasted that money by giving it to Jesus. You read it for yourself in Matthew 26. It's a waste. It's a waste. Be in the kitchen working when I could be at the feet of Jesus? It's a waste. My friends, he deserves our first. He deserves our best. It's the God of the universe. 
He deserves our best. He deserves our first. He deserves it all. When you look here at this passage, he says, when you make a vow, vow to God, do not delay in paying it. It is no pleasure in the fools. He has pay for pay pay what you vow. It is better that you not make that vow than you make it and not pay it. When you think about offering, bringing your offerings to God, I'm going to do that, God. I want to do that, but then I don't do that. Think about Daddy David. Daddy David modeled for son Solomon what it meant to make a vow and to keep it. Make a vow of an offering and keep it. Psalm 66, verse 13, I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you. That which my lips uttered, my mouth promised when I was in trouble. How many deals with God have we made when we're in trouble? But not to follow through. I was like, oh, Mike's talking about money. He's talking about giving. No, I'm not. Please, please give me the space. I'm talking about worship. I don't give. Lori and I don't give because we got to give. We give because he deserves our best and he deserves our first. It's one of the most tangible, objective ways to measure someone's heart is what they do with their money. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, for where the treasure is, there your heart is also. He deserves my first. He deserves my best. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Do I give God the cream off the top or the scum off the bottom? How is my worship? Of my money, how's the worship with my time? What part and space have I made and allowed for God to work in my life? There's something that is called margin in my life, and it's something that I did a long time ago, and it's just something that I don't even negotiate. It's just on my life. It's the, the template, if you will, of my day. It's a simple statement. I've made it to you a hundred times probably. I give God the first moment in every day, the first day out of every week, the first dime out of every dollar, and the first consideration in every decision. If I can do that on a 75, 80, 90% consistency, I feel like I've got some parameters and some margins in my life that if I'll function in them, then when decisions come my way, opportunities come my way that are really distractions, then what I'll do is I'll say, nope, that does not fit into the parameters of my margin that I've set as the template of my life. I'm not varying. I'm not going to vary from that first moment of that day because I promise you this, those in my life don't want me to vary from it because they get the shrapnel of me. My life has been blessed beyond measure by giving him the first dime out of every dollar, by giving him the first consideration. It's kept me out of a lot of stupid. He deserves my first. He deserves my best. Why do we do this? Because of what it says, the last phrase of this verse. But God is the one you must fear. Don't get lost in the word fear. Because that word in our language just means one thing, fear, scared, 
frightened. In this word, it means awe. We do what we do because we are in awe that the God of the universe so loved me and came to me and gave himself for me and sacrificed for me so that I could be with him. And I'm so afraid that I might one day lose that awe. Oh, God forbid that I would lose the awe of God and fail to worship him. Be silent. Just be silent. Be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for Him. Say it with me. Be silent before the Lord and wait for Him. Bow your heads with me, please. Every week we offer a time of response, a time to collect our thoughts and listen in. Let me say this to you with your eyes closed, nobody moving around. Man, this is, this is response to the voice of God time, not my voice, hopefully God's voice, and that's why we're going to get quiet and listen. But I'll promise you this, this is the most important time and space that we create in every worship gathering. It's a time for you to listen to God respond to him. If you've never given yourself to him, cry out right now where you're at. Jesus, I need you. I want you. I long for you. Whatever it is in your life right now that is weighing you down, breaking your back, bring it to him. I'm going to read this to you again. Be patient. Be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for him. If you can remember it, if you want to cheat, look at the screen. You can do that. Say it with me again. Be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for Him. One more time. Say it prayerfully. Be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for Him.